Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on June 25th, 2018. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Joining me today in the studio are three academics with whom I'll be having a speculative discussion about North Korea's long-term future. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. Now, let me introduce today's guests. First, we have Dr. June Park, currently a research fellow at the Key Research Institute and Northeast Asia Center of Seoul National University. She has a PhD in political science from Boston University and an MA and BA also in poli-sci from Korea University, where I once spent a year as an exchange student. Her research interests are international political economy and regional political economy, and also trans-regional economic and security relations, as well as quantitative methods. Her CV is much more impressive than I can even begin to summarize now, so we will link to her full profile on the webpage of this episode. Next, we have Dr. Tony Michel, who originally came to Korea in 1978 as a research economist for the Economic Planning Board. He has stayed in Korea working in business, teaching and advising Korean government ministries directly and indirectly. Most relevant to this podcast, he has been involved in projects in North Korea going back to 1993, including assisting Western investment into the free economic zone of Rajin Sonbong and the establishment of a joint venture pharmaceutical factory. He looks forward to going back into North Korea for future projects as soon as sanctions are eased or lifted. Finally, Dr. J.R. Kim, or Kim Jong-Norbaksanim, formerly a spokesman for the Ministry of Unification and also its Director of International Cooperation and Assistant Director of Hanawon Training Center for North Korean Refugees. Currently, he is the Director of Planning and Research at the North Korean Human Rights Center of the Ministry of Unification. In 2015, he published a book on the Northern Ireland peace process after being encouraged to look at it as a potential model for a peace process on the Korean Peninsula. He has a BA in econo- BS in economics from MIT, a master's in international affairs from Columbia University, and is currently working on a PhD dissertation at Cambridge University. Welcome to all of you. And for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to refer to you all as June, JR, and Tony. So it's perhaps fitting that we should be recording this podcast on June 25th, the 68th anniversary of the outbreak of full-scale war between the two Koreas. Given that, let's start by asking each of you, now that we have seen summit meetings between North Korea and South Korea and North Korea and the United States in the last two months, where are we now in terms of seeing an end to the Korean War? What's feasible in the short to midterm future? I'll start with you, Jun. Well, I think that the the cancellation or delay of the military exercises that were sort of the practice uh, at this time of year for Korea and the United States, the relationships going forward with between South Korea and North Korea will be much more stronger than ever before because of these kinds of arrangements that are happening now. And in the meantime, there will be geopolitical contest by international companies that are willing or are looking to invest within North Korea or uh, on projects in South Korea involving North Korea. And we will likely see some um, political entanglements amongst all parties involved, China, United States, and North Korea and South Korea. Okay, what kind of a peace regime do you look uh, for? 
forward to seeing here? A peace regime, I think at the moment, the, the best we can guarantee for now is a, a, a halt on the military exercises. There is no concrete ground as to how this would be materialized in terms of a diplomatic agreement. I think wishing for that is a little bit of a sudden goal. Um, I think right now we are just in the stage of still testing the water. Uh, each party is involved in this whole process is making their first steps, taking their first steps toward building peace and reconciling the Korean Peninsula. But that's about it. It's a little too early for us to jump into any conclusion or to become too optimistic about the near future. So right now, everybody is just cautiously taking their first steps toward toward the end they desire. Okay, thank you. And Tony? Yeah, not disagreeing with what people have said so far. The April 27th agreement did say by the end of the year there should be a peace uh, settlement. The armistice agreement is quite clear on how you do this. You just need signatures by US, China, and North Korea. In theory, there's time to actually move to a formal ending of the Korean War. Actually, post-ending of the war doesn't mean unification. It just means that you are not as an active uh, state of war uh, preparations. Would it mean the two Koreas recognizing each other as being legitimate states? The South Korean constitution defines the whole of the Korean Peninsula as under the control of the Republic of Korea. The North Korean constitution refers to the southern part under a different control. Well, what are the different factors and variables that will determine how this uh, this process goes going forward? You mentioned, Jun, um, competition between international actors. Could you tell a bit more about that, how you see those things and perhaps other factors uh, affecting how uh, rapprochement and uh, and moving towards peace could work out? Well, previously in the, in the history of South Korea and North Korean economic cooperation, there has always been some kind of South Korean governmental effort in order to facilitate the process. But I think what the North Korean initiative to do all of this has to do not only with the South Koreans, but also to open up to uh, other enterprises that are internationally active. And going forward, I think they have to do a lot of work in trying to solicit these companies to come in and do business in North Korea. I think the first step that they will take on is to have each and every government pitch in a certain amount of lump sum money in order to do energy cooperation. South Korea, in that regard, is sort of uh, assisting North Korea in this regard. President Moon is trying to facilitate the process with the Russians and also the Chinese. Whether it would be an agreeable term with North Korea, it's we don't have an answer to that yet because uh, that would also entail the U.S being a little bit sidelined in the process if it comes to energy cooperation, whereas the U.S. still uh, under the Trump administration, there is still a strong intent to increase the level of shale gas exports to South Korea and China and Japan. Okay, Jaya, what factors do you see influencing it? June talks about expanding economic cooperation between the two Koreas and between North Korea and the international community, but I guess it's a little bit too early to talk about it. Well, I guess there are two factors we have to consider. One is that whether it will be possible for us to expand economic cooperation, which we had at current stage with North Korea, 
uh, despite the fact that there is no reconciliation or no uh, progress uh, made in denuclearization of North Korea. Well, maybe uh, to a certain extent it would be possible the international community, including the United States, will try to extend their cooperation with North Koreans uh, while North Korea makes a gradual uh, improvement in uh, denuclearization area. But uh, there are many people also uh, in South Korea and in the United States as well and the rest of the international community who are pretty much worried about extending economic cooperation with North Koreans while there is no concrete progress in uh, denuclearization track. That's, I guess, something that we should uh, look at. And those are the, one of the most important factors. That is that whether uh, international community, including the United States and South Korea, uh, is willing to, and if it is, if they are willing to, then to what extent uh, they are willing to expand their economic cooperation with North Korea while North Koreans are not completely denuclearized itself. Yeah, that's a good, good point there. Tony, what do you Nobody think? Nobody has mentioned the word sanction, and all of this is conditional on the sanction regime. Chinese have indicated through Global Times and elsewhere that they will go to the UN and try to moderate the uh, sanctions against trade with uh, North Korea. Every sanction um, decision by the Security Council has an Article 28, which says if the North changes its attitude, then the Council will abolish moderate or otherwise change the particular sanction order. Whether the US is ready to listen to that in, in the Security Council, I, I can see quite a uh, conflict there. But we know already that China has relaxed on the border its sanction control. And so we have actually two two issues. One is formal sanctions, and the other is what actually happens on the ground. The U.S. is strongest for formal sanctions, and I believe will maintain U.S. unilateral sanctions right to the end. But China will probably ignore all of that. So we're in a slightly Iran-like situation, except that Iran is in a different geographic location from North Korea, and that Russia and China can pretty well ignore U.S. sanctions. And uh, China has consistently denounced unilateral sanctions going beyond territorial boundaries. So I could see that we might have a real issue about that in the future. And isn't also the case that uh, U.S. unilateral sanctions require improvement in North Korean human rights before these sanctions are lifted? Isn't that written into the sanctions themselves? The sanction framework of the of the U.S. is quite complicated. Some well predate the concern with human rights, but I believe that if Congress gets involved, and they will, then human rights will be a key criteria. The other issue is about waivers. There is a second way you can deal with, you don't move the sanction at all, but the UN committee gives a waiver. And I believe that President Moon will propose a waiver for Kaesong Industrial Estate. Mm. And I believe that nobody will oppose that. Do you think it's likely that he would move ahead on reopening Kaesong without US approval? I think US approval comes at various levels. Without uh, open disapproval, I think the um, Koreans might open it. If uh, President Trump were to tweet that this is the wrong thing to do or John Bolton makes a statement, mm. I think the situation is different. But South Korea is a sovereign nation. Under its constitution, Kaesong is in its own territory. It's just occupied by somebody else. So I think that 
international lawyers will have a field day. Mm, interesting. Uh, the last couple of months, a lot of the things, a lot of the developments have been uh, due to uh, goodwill and rapport on the part of the three leaders with each other. Do you think that's enough to, to carry the current push through? What do you think, Jun? China is willing to sort of lift some of the claws on the most stringent sanctions on North Korea that we have seen in the previous months heading towards the summit that we had in Singapore is precisely the reason why we, we anticipate a fierce competition going forward because within mainland China, there are investors trying to get a stake vis-a-vis economic cooperation, regardless of how the sanctions regime operates under sort of U.S.-led influence geopolitical order in, in this part of the world. And that's what worries us most, what should worry us most, because then there would be no regulatory framework either established by the South Korean government or or another entity or a cooperative framework, uh, bilateral or multilateral, to sort of reinforce the kinds of measures under which North Korea should be uh, denuclearizing, at the same time getting what it asked for. And I think that would be a little bit of a concern going forward. Uh, in the past, we had uh, times when the leadership in Washington, Seoul, Tokyo and Pyongyang did not go along well. And every time we had some discord among the leadership, we failed to make any progress in bringing peace on the Korean Peninsula and peace between North Korea and the United States. But this time, I think we have a very good combination of leadership, although each of them are very distinctive in a way. Uh, and sometimes unpredictable, but still uh, they make so far a very good combination of uh, cooperation uh, among them. So I think this is very important for us to have this leadership for the time being. And as far as sanctions are concerned, uh, there are different sanctions we have imposed on North Korea. There are unilateral sanctions United States imposed and South Korea imposed against North Korea, and also there are international sanctions uh, imposed on North Korea by United Nations Security Council, the multilateral international sanctions will be a little bit difficult to uh, to get eased or to be lifted because of the uh, complex uh, procedures you have to go through and all the consensus you have to have among the member states. But bilateral sanctions will be a little easier for us to remove. But in both countries, both United States and South Korea, there are uh, the president and Congress and president and president and the, and the general public. And even in South Korea, I guess it requires some kind of friendly gesture uh, from the North Korean side uh, to have stronger consensus or support from the public for President Moon to take a step toward uh, easing sanctions yeah. or lifting sanctions, uh, which was imposed on them since the time of Chonan sinking and uh, the bombing of uh, Yampyong Island. It will be up to North Koreans to make it easy for President Moon to, uh, to remove the sanctions at this point, uh, sanctions on Kaesong Industrial Complex, on uh, Mount Gongang tourism, or, or on inter-Korean trade. Tony, what do you think about uh, uh, Chinese-North Korean relations? And uh, you, you've already 
well, we've already talked about the loosening of the, of the noose, as it were. Uh, but to what do we ascribe the eagerness of both Kim and she to meet so uh, regularly when for the first six years uh, she wouldn't give Kim the time of day, not even by telegraph? I think it's pointless to speculate about the past. Let's look at what happened at the last meeting, which is where North Korea becomes qualified for the Belt and Road treatment which means that one part of the uh, international capital that Korea needs to modernize, that June was talking about, is likely to be supplied by China willingly. We need to remember that part of the game is about North Korea's mineral wealth, especially the rare metals. And so the country that first gets a really good deal, trade deal, and offers a lot of money, we expect to get the prime chance on these uh, mineral resources. Do we all agree that uh, the, that one belt, one road uh, is likely to apply to North Korea? Because it's been my impression, and I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but I just thought that one belt, one road was looking more uh, westwards rather than you know back east from China. What's your sense on this, June? So I just came back from a, a panel which was under Chatham House over the weekend at a Korean politics annual conference meeting organized by MOFA, and we had two Chinese participants who would underscore the impact of the inclusion of the Korean peninsula. Uh, it wasn't strictly stating that South Korea would be part of it, but that the Korean peninsula could be part of it if there are infrastructure and energy cooperations underway, especially infrastructure. And I think from the South Korean standpoint, if we if you talk to a lot of bureaucrats, you are able to sense a, a very um, keen interest in reviving the infrastructure projects that were stalled years ago. Chinese participants were very specifically knowledgeable on these projects to the astonishment uh, from coming as a political economist. Mm. I was quite surprised how they knew each and every detail. And they aligned these projects in line with the Belt and Road Railways all throughout the Asian continent and envisioned something that would be paralleling their pathways in the maritime linkages. So not just through the land route, but also the maritime route. And they emphasized how big of a chance it could be for all of the players involved. Uh, Japan was out of the question, mm. though. But I think that the South Korean participants were sort of uh, interested in this kind of a framework. And without knowing where the Belt and Road Initiative is going, mm. this is a little bit concerning. So a Busan to Birmingham rail connection might finally become a reality thanks to Belt and Road Project? If there is an, a political will, I think, you know, you know, chipping in the funding is probably not a, a huge hurdle under the Moon administration from the South Korean part, but from the North Korean side, I'm not sure as to how much of a commitment and opening would be guaranteed uh, in order to be part of this. And once this happens, there is also going to be backlash from the United States because it would mean a drastic change in terms of infrastructure. Very different question here. How much do we know and how much can we know about what Kim Jong-un's goals and desired outcomes are? Well, I think he's made it clear that he wishes to develop the economy. In the last three years, there has been a plan which is zone by zone. So there are like 23 or 24 zones designated for uh, for development. 
I was involved in a, a training meeting with the North Korean officials at an early stage of this planning. And then in the talk with President Moon, I understand that he said he wanted Kaesong industrial estates spread all the way along the DMZ. So one, one of the advantages of a, a special zone is that you can control it. Um, it doesn't necessarily spill out into the surrounding area. So you can be free in Rassam, but you need a permit to move on to Chongjin, for yeah. example. And um, a couple of years ago, I was involved in discussion about a Rassam airport where they needed to move the boundary of the zone. Uh, and there were all kinds of discussions, including kind of Berlin Corridor Road mm. down to this airport. Yeah. I mean, these are just discussions. But I see for... Uh, for South Korea, the highway connections to China are the most important thing. <clears throat> you know, the economy of North Korea is not that big. It's smaller than any single province in China, mm. and the population is smaller than any single province. <laughs> so for me as a businessman, I want an expressway that goes through North Korea. It can be a Berlin Corridor style, or it can be a real open expressway. But that's where things will really change here. But none of that will be very attractive to Americans concerned about their, their zone of... I guess many people now agree that Kim Jong-un wants to build North Korean economy. And there's some, I guess, uh, his sincere desire in that. But the question is, and still we don't know the answer to that, and we try to find out its point is that whether in his program, or in his uh, plans to uh, build a North Korean economy, is South Korea included or not, it, he can do it both ways, I guess. Uh, he can do it without South Korea. If he can connect his economy to Chinese economy, and probably Japanese and Russians, and even the American and the rest of the international economy, then he can still uh, find a way to build up his economy by no, opening up to international community other than South Korea. And he has, as Tony mentioned, opened a number of special economic zones across the country. But only two of them are open to so-called South Koreans. And even those two are not open to South Koreans at this point, Kaesong and Mam Kungang. So he's only willing to cooperate with South Koreans in very limited area, especially on, on the two Korean borders. Whereas South Koreans wanted to expand their cooperation into and across the country. Years ago, there is an international program led by United Nations Development Program, UNDP, and both South and North Korea was part of it. South Korea participated as the major uh, observer. Back then, uh, in the early 1990s, the program could not be successful because North Korea didn't show strong interest in that, and China had uh, no money, whereas Russia also had strong interest but no money. So uh, none of the parties involved in the project was able to carry them out. But maybe this is something that can be refocused and, and had a new light on. I think that uh, we pretty much agree that there has been some desire coming from North Korea with regard to uh, having a stronger economy because the the country has been under crippling sanctions for quite some time now. Kim Jong-un, under these kinds of circumstances, was not 
able to provide for the rest of the population. And that could also trigger some uh, discontent, domestic discontent towards the leadership, which puts him under jeopardy politically. And so I think it is fair to say or believe that Kim Jong-un has a very strong intent to open up. But as JR just mentioned, it's, it's questionable because going forward, this kind of opening up changes a lot of the geopolitical order that we already have in place right now. Even if China wants to get a, a bigger stake in this, and Russia as well, there has to be some political will from the South Korean government and uh, its constituencies going forward in terms of cooperation with North Korea. Judging from how the U.S. is reacting, especially with the reinstallment of the sanctions, I think that whenever there is going Going to be an economic cooperation cooperation scheme, whatever it is, there will be pushback. Uh, and certainly, uh, Mike Pompeo has stated that tax money is not going to get involved. So we would likely see more non-U.S. interests coming on, but the U.S. would not be welcoming them. Now, at the uh, the Kim Trump summit, President Trump showed a remarkable promotional video outlining the potential future paths for North Korea. It included the famous picture of South and North Korea at night with the North in darkness. Then it shows a uh, computer-modified picture of the North showing a fantastic light show at night. Uh, Assuming that we keep going as we have been in the last few months with the peace process and and that economic growth and opening in the North that we've just talked about and that, that that takes off, how long would it take or how long could it take for North Korea to reach such a state? Uh, I know it's a very speculative question, but let's just look at most optimistic uh, estimates, first of all? I think it all would uh, depend on how much uh, leverage that China has over the United States in the long term. This has to do with the differences of political systems. While presidential systems have changing leadership, Xi Jinping is slated to rule indefinitely for the time being. And even if Kim Jong-un continues on this path, there could be plans that are toppled over because of the changes in the president in the United States or here in South Korea. And it has always been the case in the previous decades. So we should not expect too much of an expedited economic development in North Korea. It has to be a more gradual kind of a process. I guess one advantage North Korea has over South Korea is that North Korea has rich natural resources, mineral resources. And South Korea, because of that, had to depend on uh, export driven, you know, a growth. And North Korea is also a small country. Their domestic market is relatively small, so they have to be an export-dependent country as well, you know, to get fast growth. It is true that North Korea, to many people's surprise, is a export-driven country even at this point. They depend more than 50% of the economy on trade, trade with China these days, mostly. North Korea was a major uh, player in Comic-Con back in the 1970s and 80s, supplying light goods, uh, light industry goods that Russian economy couldn't provide. The economy of North Korea cannot grow more than 10 to 15 percent. You mean per year? Per year, because no economy has ever grown faster Mm. than that. Shenzhen was able to maintain 15 percent, and we might look at that as a kind of model, but it wasn't a whole country. Mm. You You only need so much capital injected to get 
15% growth. At the beginning, given the size and, and state of North Korea, it's not that much. Once you've provided a, a reasonable infrastructure framework of roads, railways, and electricity. So I believe that it's actually quite possible, given the timing, that North Korea is now the most suitable market where you have highly skilled workers at low wage rates. China has now passed that phase. Mm. Vietnam is, a, is a more expensive than North Korea will be. Mm. There is actually a super moment for, for North Korea if it's able to be open at this, uh, in the coming year or so. But just taking advantage of their cheap skilled labor and focusing on labor-intensive industry, that do not help them to reach the point of you know, South Korean economy, the level of South Korean economy, they need more than that. Other things they can do is sell their mineral resources, but that still is not the way for them to catch up with the South Korean economy. They have to come up with a more value-added product. Maybe they have to convert their high-tech in military industry to uh, a civilian industry, civilian economy, and they use their missile technology, they use their nuclear technology, whatever, uh, to come up with more you know, a high-tech, value-added uh, export. Okay, let's talk a bit about the risks of investment in North Korea. South Korea's Hyundai Asan invested a lot of money in the Kumgangsang Resort, as did uh, Emerson Pacific, the South Korean company that built the five-star Ananti Golf Resort and Hotel there, which that they've been sitting there empty and, and uh, unused since 2008, as well as the Kaesong Industrial Complex uh, that for the last few years has been shuttered. And then we have the case of the Egyptian cell phone company, Oroscom, who, when they tried to take profits offshore were told by the North Korean government that they had to exchange their won into dollars at the much more expensive rate, thereby reducing their actual profits greatly. Given these kinds of well, are these risks exceptional or could they be typical of future potential risks uh, for investors in North Korea? And would you be advising people to invest in North Korea anytime soon? I think that's a question for me. Obviously, political risk is the highest one. The first uh, ventures you mentioned were all closed because of political risk. Araskam made some mistakes in the way it negotiated its contract without making it clear whether they were adopting the official rate or the unofficial rate. Indeed, the exchange rate is an important issue going forward. And I see some very bad thinking coming out of Ministry of Strategy and Finance and FSC on that. Everybody should take the free market rate and North Korea should abolish the official rate or move it step by step up. So in terms of investment and risk in North Korea, would you be uh, recommending to company or advising companies uh, to think about investing in North Korea? Absolutely, providing you've got your sanctions worked out properly. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you're back with political risks. So. Yeah. I guess one other factor you have to consider on that is that North Korea is a uh, socialist country. The political party rules over the economy or the rest of government. So North Korea Workers' Party uh, dictates... Uh, economy, over economy. As long as that system stays in the same principles of market economy, would have very difficult time to be uh, operating in this system. So if Kim Jong-un, as the leader of the party, makes the decision to you know, change the system, then, but even if he makes the decision, it will not you know, happen automatically. We, we need to educate the people in the party, you know, the uh, policymakers in the party and the government as well. So what the international community should do 
uh, once we make sure that Kim Jong-un made his decision to change his country, we have to provide all the opportunities for you know, education to these people in the North Korean Workers' Party and the government. Can I come back very briefly? One, okay. I, I'm a European, so we're used to dealing with socialist countries. Uh, we have mixed economies. So there's no great difficulty in dealing with it. Secondly, since 2002, North Korea has recognized private enterprise by North Korean citizens. So there's a, a growing literature about the Dongju and Changmadang and so on. And all of these exist. The only question we don't know is how badly the sanctions have damaged them relative first to state-owned enterprise. How would economic growth affect the lives of ordinary North Korean citizens? Um, obviously, uh, human rights is a, a hot topic with relation to North Korea. Some people argue that we need to look at and uh, ameliorate human rights issues first and wait until that situation improves before we look at investing anything in North Korea. What do you think? June, do you want to start that one off? Even on China, the United States had grappled over this issue until it gained PNTR status. I think North Korea may have to be getting on the same kind of track. Vietnam and China joined the WTO after all of these procedures were sorted out. And if North Korea wants to be a full-fledged member of the world economy, it will go through the same kind of process. But it doesn't really seem to have that kind of an open political opening towards external solicited investors. It wants the investment, but it doesn't have the guarantee towards ensuring that their investments would be safe. And going forward, if North Korea tries to get on the same track as as China, China will continuously engage in advising North Korea to do this and that, and that that may not be good for the benefit of uh, external investors and South Korea. To get risk insurance, you need coverage by MIGA, Multilateral Investment Guarantee Assurance, which comes from the World Bank Group. So if I was advising North Koreans, I'd say you need to get on with this quickly, because many people will take the risk. And there have been cases of foreigners winning in the North Korean courts against the police of all people on a commercial issue. What, is that with regard to, I don't know, goods being confiscated or something? Or what? can you say anything more specific about that? Yeah, it was um, <laughs> a typical North Korean thing. Second-hand cars were being imported into North Korea via uh, Wonsan. They were then taken up to the Chinese border, and it was the police's part of the contract to take them across the border and give money back. That was the lawsuit. You mean the police weren't giving the money back? No, they actually, the Chinese had stopped the rules, so they couldn't take it across the border. Wow. But the company sued the North Korean company that made the arrangements through to, um, to this, and the courts decided that that company should compensate the foreign investor. Mm. Then the problem arose about, as in South Korea, how do you actually get possession of, of a judgment? And the uh, North Korean company pleaded they didn't have money. So the court ruled that as you get money, your bank account will have part of the money repaid. I'm afraid I don't know whether the rest of the story, this happened in the 1990s. 1990s, okay. Can Kim Jong-un achieve economic reform without political opening? Can he have his perestroika without the glasnost? I think those two, perestroika and glasnost, have to go together, uh, not necessarily at the same time, but you no, know, in a different time sequence, and they have to come together. Well, Kim Jong Un try will try very hard to have his 
perestroika without glasnost will try to reform under the uh, North Korean party rule, one man, one party rule. But as time passes, as things get better, as the economy gets stronger, eventually people will start to have their awareness of outside world and uh, about political rights, their human rights and everything. So this will be likely to you know, bring change in the political and social system as well. So Glasnost will follow sooner or later. I think that's a very positive outlook, and I wish it could be like that. There is a portion of Taeyong-ho's book that leads me to question whether these solicitations from North Korea could be everlasting uh, going forward if North Korea tries to strengthen its political regime after years of economic opening because it wants to strengthen the Kim Jong-un leadership, then we would be in chaos like we've we've gone through in, in multiple different sessions uh, in the past. However, I do agree to a certain extent that within North Korea, I think there is a level of exposure to external information, and that compels a, a human being to be more outreaching to the outside world. And if that happens under certain rules of economic cooperation and people-to-people exchange, there would be floods of North Korean workers trying to find some uh, piece of job or economic deal from South Korea or elsewhere, not just China, but elsewhere. And that may really propel or even strike, uh, uh, shake the North Korean regime to an extent that we have never really seen before. And I guess what we should only think right now for now is that we are on shaky grounds on predicting the lifeline of the North Korean regime. I think uh, the idea that democracy and economic growth go together is unfortunately not well-founded. Belarus, Kazakhstan, Vietnam, China have all gone into economic change, but not political change. At the moment, they're finishing counting the votes in Turkey, where <clears throat> democracy has been rolled back very fast. So I don't have any faith in that process, but there will be Kwangju's, there will be the kind of democratic revolution of uh, 1987, whether they are successful. I, I agree with uh, June that North Korea is actually exposed to more influences than Vietnam or China. Well, I'm not sure about China, but Maybe these uh, attempts succeed and maybe they are more peaceful. The present voting system for the Supreme People's Assembly, I am told, uh, and I can only say what I'm told by North Koreans, is that there is a kind of primary system where a candidate is proposed and other people can stand against the candidate and then the vote is on the final candidate. So you get right. 99%. That sounds like a potential to have a more bottoms-up local democracy. Let me throw out a, uh, a curly uh, moral question. Um, should the, uh, the Kim family be aided and abetted in their continued rule over North Korea? Morally, you may not accept that. But realistically speaking, you don't have any better alternative. That is the problem at this point. I mean, we need more stable North Korean leadership to deal with, to discuss and, you know, to build our future uh, together with the North Korean leadership. And Kim Jong-un leadership seems to be very stable. And it's not just Kim Jong-un or the Kim Il-sung family that's taking over the entire country. There is, although it could be manipulated, could be brainwashed, or could be composed. 
still there are partially uh, some consensus among North Korean leadership, some part of North Korean population that supports Kim Jong-un uh, family leadership. So I guess the best thing you can do is just take for granted at this point. And as time passes on, as we build up greater cooperation with North Koreans, hopefully North Korean economy gets stronger and better, and uh, that will, in a way, have a spiritual effect on North Korean uh, consciousness so that democratic capacity within North Korean society sort of builds up gradually, then eventually North Korean people will realize and will develop uh, capacity strong enough to you know, change their leadership. If I have a moral bucket list, removing um, Kim Jong-un is pretty low in the list of priorities. I think Why we so? have a whole range of things to do first. And I would start with stopping censorship between the two countries. Still, <clears throat> South Korea does not let me go to North Korean websites, does not allow me, if I'm detected, bringing books into, uh, into South Korea, does not allow South Koreans with relatives in the North to send them letters, send them emails or other things. Well, actually, if you are to communicate with your partners, business partners, potential business partners in North Korea, or you are looking for one in North Korea, you have to get uh, approval from the government. But these days, I mean, it's just automatically given, more or less free to communicate with North Koreans to, you know, to start your business uh, with North Koreans. It's just North Koreans that do not allow communication with South Koreans freely. What about the uh, accessing North Korean websites that Tony mentioned? Okay, that's still a problem, I guess. There's some restriction on yeah, accessing the internet site, uh, you know, provided by North Korean authorities. Well, we can't read the Nordong Shinwon website here every day. That's right. Can't watch Korean Central Television. So I, this is not only, and let's not pick on South Korea. You can't what, read the Korea Times or Korea Herald in North Korea. We need to think, to make a whole moral map of all the issues and decide which ones we're going to tackle first. And I would start with the things that affect ordinary lives, ordinary separated families, prisoners, and so on, rather than worry about who is running North Korea right now. That's exactly what we wanted to do, you know, uh, years ago, uh, by expanding interactions and cooperations with North Koreans, including communications more freely with North Koreans. But all of a sudden, so efforts got stopped because of the, uh, you know, military provocation by North Koreans. But hopefully, uh, this North Korean regime under Kim Jong-un uh, leadership is different from his father's and grandfather's, and, and let's just hope that things will get better uh, in the future. June, I'm going to let you have the final word. All of us should take a moment to think about what kind of future we want with North Korea going forward, because the previous engagements that we've had in the past are sort of ordained under the liberal international order, and that is uh, very, very gradually changing uh, under the Trump administration. We're, we're not really able to predict what will happen in 2020, but there are serious changes that are happening in America in terms of elections. We should probably try to adjust to the realities of a shifting global order that we haven't seen before. Okay, well, that's a good note to end on. I'd like to say once again, thank you very much to our guests today, Dr. June Park, Dr. Tony Michelle, 
and Dr. J.R. Kim. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Please share our podcast with friends and enemies if you like it, and even if you don't. Our podcast was produced by Arius Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Listen again next time. Thank you.